Utah Public Radio. This is Undisciplined Science News Roundup. This week on the program, we're talking about the shape of the Milky Way, life on the moon, a poorly advised tweet, the impact of artificial intelligence on Hollywood, and a whole lot more. Everybody on the show this week is an expert on something, but none of them is an expert in any of those things. It's the Undisciplined Science News Roundup, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Once a month on this program, we gather together a few of our favorite former guests to talk about some of the biggest stories in science, research, and exploration. And in true undisciplined fashion, we do this with guests from vastly different academic backgrounds. Joining us today in studio is Joseph Wilson, an ecologist from Utah State University, where he heads the Insect Evolution Lab and runs around the country looking for new species of bees. He is the author of The Bees in Your Backyard, A Guide to North American Bees, and he tweets that at Bees Backyard. Joe, it's great to see you. Good to be here. Also in studio today is our favorite biochemist turned science communicator, Julie Kiefer, who is the Associate Director of Science Communication at the University of Utah Health Sciences. She tweets at Julie C. Kiefer, that's J-U-L-I-E-C-K-I-E-F-E-R. Hey, Julie. Hey, good to be here. And joining us on the line from Boulder, Colorado, where she is a doctoral candidate working on the diversity of El Nino events, is Danielle Lemon. You can find her on Twitter at ILemon. That's I-L-E-M-M-O-N. Hey, Danielle. Hey, great to be here. Let's start today, as we often do in this monthly segment of our show, by talking about space. Friends, I want to talk about the Milky Way. And when I think of the Milky Way, I think of this scene from the 1987 movie Can't Buy Me Love. That was Patrick Dempsey's first starring role. In it, he plays an astronomy nerd who bribes a popular girl to go out with him. And yikes, as I'm saying this, I realize now this movie does not hold up very well. Anyway, he tells this girl to look up at the Milky Way and she says, I can't see it. There's a cloud in the way. And that indeed is what the Milky Way sort of looks like if you can get away from all the light pollution. If you take a step back, though, maybe 100,000 light years back, the conventional assumption is that the Milky Way is sort of a flat spiraling disk. In fact, according to a new 3D map, it's not flat at all. It's more S-shaped. How did this study help you all think about the galaxy that you call home? What is amazing about that is that you think you know something like the back of your hand, but in reality, you don't. You don't know what you don't know. And and that's what science can tell you, especially exploratory science, when you're just looking for things just to look. And what this uh, study showed is that our Milky Way is warped and twisted, which I think we all kind of knew in some sense or another, uh, maybe metaphorically. It's going to, I think, raise new questions about how the galaxy was formed and what are the influences that are shaping it today. When we think of something spinning around kind of a central axis, a disk would make sense because that's what we see all around us is a disk spinning around a central axis. But having this S shape around that axis is different. It's weird. And it doesn't seem to make sense with the way we thought things were working. So hopefully this will lead to a lot of new discoveries of the Milky Way. I think it's really indicative that the astronomy field right now is probably going through many paradigm shifts that are going to completely revolutionize our understanding of the universe. So I'm really excited to see what's on the other side of this study. I also thought that, oh man, you know, the fact that we found out that the Milky Way is not flat means that there's going to be some flat Milky Wayers, just like (laughs) flat earthers. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my god, I didn't even think about that. But That's you know, awesome. you make a really interesting point. It's a really funny point, but it's also really interesting because the part of the galaxy that we are in is sort of the flat part before it like broadens out into this S shape. So a lot of what we understand comes from what we know. And of course, this whole flat Earth thing comes from a point of time in our history in which a lot of people sort of assume that was the case. And the more we know, the more we realize that what we know is is really, really limited. But that's science, right? Now, these astronomers built this map based on the locations of pulsating Cepheid stars. And we can use Cepheids to measure distance because the time it takes for a star to brighten and then to fade apparently correlates really well to its intrinsic brightness. But then if you compare that intrinsic brightness to the measured brightness from Earth, and then you do a little math, you can find the star's distance. So this is a pretty clever trick of science. And it got me to thinking that there are probably a lot of times when scientists need some sort of workaround to answering a question and I'm wondering if within your disciplines, there are examples of that. It seems like we do this in science all the time. I study bees, and so my life, my life and thoughts revolve around bees. I don't know exactly how many bees live in Utah. And so I have to do a, a kind of a similar trick, right? I, can, I measure what I can, and then I extrapolate from that measurement. This is a process of science, is that we have big questions that are hard to directly measure, and so we measure correlates. I study El Nino Southern Oscillation, and I study how it affects food security all over the world. And there's this metric called the Agricultural Stress Index, which is actually based on pigmentation of what should be agricultural land. And basically, if the color isn't right, you can surmise that the plants are stressed out and may not be yielding the amount of food that they need to be. So we use those kinds of mediary properties all the time. I think what this raises for me is that, you know, a lot of science is based on associations. So you see that a lot, a lot in the health fields. Um, you know, people who eat lots of nuts have better heart health. But do we know that it's the nuts that are causing us to have healthier hearts? Maybe those people are also of a certain ethnicity or exercise more or something else that we're not measuring. And that speaks to kind of the evolution of science. You know, we're always getting closer and closer to the right answer. But part of how science progresses is finding better and better ways to reach that conclusion. So what, what Julie just said has been, I've been thinking a lot about that because one of the, the dangers in science, so we use kind of fancy methods to try to understand complex problems, but if we don't, as scientists or as citizens, if we don't recognize that we are not directly taking a picture of the Milky Way galaxy, for example, that this is this is our best understanding based on the data that we have, if we, if we miss that part of science and we assume, oh, we know how this works, it kind of stops the science process. And so we need to recognize that science doesn't end, you know, there's not an end point. Let's stay in space, but let's get a lot closer to the Earth. The science story that got the most talk around my dinner table this month was the one that suggested that there may now be life on the moon, thanks to an Israeli spacecraft that crash-landed there in April, and in doing so, may have spread its cargo of tardigrades all 
over the impact crater. Tardigrades are nearly indestructible here on Earth. They can survive some really, really harsh conditions, the sort that you might find on the moon, in fact, by shrinking into a tiny ball and expelling most of the water for their bodies. They can survive this way for 10 years, sometimes longer. Now, there isn't much water on the moon, and they do need that to survive, but we discussed this here a few months ago. There is actually quite a bit of water under the surface if you squeeze a ton of moon dirt, you can get a cup of water. So who knows, maybe a tardigrade or a few of them happen to find some of that and we could have just introduced life on Luna. What do you guys think about this? Well, first of all, if you're talking about tardigrades, um, I'm going to perk up because they're so cute. <laughs> they're in they trouble, but they're also ugly. They're ugly, they're cute. cute. They're like they're, a pug dog. they're puffy. <laughs> they're they've got many arms, but they have they are arms with hands, and um, you just want to squeeze them. But anyways, really mixed feelings about this one. Um, you know, you think of our pristine environments, and space has got to be one of the most pristine environments we have out there. There's some space junk out there, but now we're talking about something different, which is. Um, introducing a life form out there. It, in my opinion, I don't think tardigrades are going to jump to life on the moon, but, you know, that's kind of beside the point. It's it's that it opens up this awareness that we have to be, I think, we have to be really careful about what we're doing because there could be unintended consequences. When I heard about this, I thought, first, why were they sending tardigrades? And so these aren't just like live tardigrades crawling around the spacecraft. They were encapsulated inside like a resin like plastic. And then someone said there might have been like a dusting of tardigrade. <laughs> on, on the tape. Yeah, on the yeah. tape. And so, and then also. It sounds like a sixth grade science yeah. project. And well, then they also sent human DNA samples. And I just thought, what were they doing? Like, what was their goal for this spacecraft? And it ends up they added the tardigrades and the human DNA samples like just right before the launch, just a couple of weeks before the launch. So I thought this is a weird, a weird project, first of all. I like it sounds like they're trying to meet someone up there that's going to take the human DNA and the tardigrades and make something. Um, so I thought it was weird uh, and somewhat maybe careless. It seems like if there's tardigrades on the tape that they're using and then it crashes, now there's dehydrated tardigrades on the moon. So my two thoughts are this. One, it was a weird experiment. Two, I don't think that much will come from it. Uh, tardigrades in space, they're still in the vacuum of space, right? There's not a there's not a atmosphere on the moon. And so there is little to no chance that they will ever be alive again. But we do have a DNA mess on the moon now. Tardigrade DNA, some human DNA in plastic, and some instructions about human culture apparently was also on the spacecraft. So space is just about as close to a true anarchy as you're going to find but it feels to me like there should be some international consensus before anybody does something like sending animals into space. Um, certainly in this kind of like weird way, like Joe just said, that that they did. Your, your thoughts on this, Danielle? We have violated prime directive. We have already <laughs> failed at, at creating a good Starfleet. You can't just go lay a bunch of animals on another planet. Yeah, I thought I'd bring up something else that came up 
not long after that, which is um, the force that is Elon Musk and, you know, him tweeting about wanting to warm up Mars by sending out nukes. And then he said, well, maybe not nukes, but maybe solar panels. But, you know, it, it kind of speaks to this idea that any, you know, wackadoo with lots of money and resources can it's it's a free for all. They can, you know, kind of do whatever they want. And, you know, maybe we need a little oversight. Up until fairly recently in our history, I think that nations have worked harder to work together in space than they do on Earth. And that feels like it's changing. And now it's not just it's not nations working together, it's individuals. You know, something else I think this speaks to is that science is moving so fast that, you know, we just can't anticipate what's going to come up. And this is happening in, happening in a lot of areas, and I'm thinking of CRISPR and genome editing, and, you know, I'm sure that's a whole other show. But people are just taking off with these ideas and doing what they can. It's somebody's job, I don't know who, to, you know, kind of figure this out, you know, kind of put their heads together and anticipate these issues and, um, you know, put a few regulations in place. We, we live in a post-consensus environment, I think. Julie, you mentioned fast-moving science. Maybe one of the fastest-moving sciences right now is artificial intelligence. And one of the most, I guess, it was disappointing stories of the month for me was about researchers who had trained an AI program to predict whether a movie would be a success or a flop at the box office using nothing more than a summary of the movie and a really pretty simple binary algorithm that said this plot point is positive and this plot point is negative. And then it found a pattern. And it turns out we are complete simpletons when it comes to the choices that we make on whether or not we're going to go to a movie. I don't know that that's exactly what the study says, right? If you look in the text of what the actual model does, it can accurately predict whether a movie would be unpopular. And actually, I don't necessarily think that that's a hard thing to teach a machine because I think we all recognize what a bad movie looks like, that there are no twists and turns. So if it can positively identify that, it's well on its way. But I don't think it says something about us that, you know, we can be so easily reduced down to a couple of changes in the plot points in what we consume as humans. I take your point. Um, I, I do wonder, though, like if a machine can figure out what makes a bad movie, why can't Hollywood producers who spend <laughs> tens and hundreds of millions of dollars do the same? Other thoughts? I, I kind of thought this study seemed a little bit circular. So the way they did this, they taught the machine based on Wikipedia summaries of the movies. My assumption is that those Wikipedia summaries were written after the movie was out. Please. So the uh, popularity of the movie had already kind of been culturally decided, then people write it on Wikipedia. So if it's a movie that's culturally popular, there's likely to be probably a more robust, but also a, a different style of review on Wikipedia by whoever's writing that. And if the movie flopped, there's going to be a different kind of Wikipedia article about that. So I kind of felt like they were teaching the machine based on preconceived things. So the predictive value kind of seemed circular to me. I think that's a really good point, Joe, because uh, it, it brings up the idea of AI bias, which is a huge problem. So I, I think artificial intelligence is really cool and will do a lot of good things. 
But it's only as good as whoever created it and, you know, kind of the, the ingredients and it went into making the algorithms in the first place. And so, you know, a big topic in that field is, is bias, for example, using AI to look through mammograms for abnormalities. But the population that you have your information about abnormalities from are all of one ethnicity, for example, then if something looks different in someone from another ethnicity, then it's never going to find those abnormalities in that population and therefore introducing this bias. So it sounds like this this might be another good example of that where people are going into this with some preconceived notions that might be tainting the whole process. And I don't know if we remember that just three years ago, Microsoft came out with a Twitter AI chatbot, and Twitter taught it to be racist in less than a day. So, quick, quick. Like, it was bad. They, they, it was, like, I can't even imagine the person at Microsoft who was, like, rushing to the computer, like, shut it down, shut it down. <laughs> I, I think Julie's point is right on target, that AI does have bias, and then when you combine it um, with the fact that it is being fed this sort of already settled summary on something that was written post-production. I don't think that we're in any cultural trouble from the fact that this is happening. I just wanted to point out one of the biases. So in this computer learning environment, they taught the computer if it was a positive description of the scene or a, a negative description. The examples they give is for positive, Thor loves his hammer. And for negative, Thor gets in a fight. I think those Thor movies were popular not because he loved his hammer, uh, but because he got in a fight. And so the positive and negative like assignments are are part of that bias. You know, I think it's it's more complicated than it. And so if you love a really bad movie, go for it. You maybe you're well, right and the machine's wrong. Let's move from something that's pretty funny to something that's really really serious. There were multiple mass shootings this month in the United States, and the fact that it is not actually necessarily news that there were multiple mass shootings in the United States this month is as much of a statement about our society as anything. In the midst of that, one of the world's most famous scientists, Neil deGrasse Tyson, found himself being really staunchly criticized when he tweeted a comparison to gun deaths and other kinds of deaths suggesting that our focus on mass shootings is misplaced. What did you guys make of this? Danielle, you want to start us off? Yeah, I think that his statements were problematic for a number of reasons. Let's just talk about the tweet. He says, in the past 48 hours, the USA horrifically lost 34 people to mass shootings. On average, across any 48 hours, we also lose 500 to medical errors, 300 to the flu, 250 to suicide, 200 to car accidents, 40 to homicide via handgun. He says that sometimes our emotions respond more to spectacle than data. It is a good message, but it's at the exact wrong time. So humans do often tend to not gauge threats accurately. We may overemphasize threats that aren't actually threatening to us, like, I don't know, being eaten by a shark attack uh, when you're by the ocean. Or, for example, people may underestimate the size of the climate crisis. In terms of gun violence, people are angry about government corruption. The U.S. is a leader in gun violence. But gun violence is completely preventable, and there's direct evidence that the NRA is blocking sensible legislation. 
I have mixed feelings about this tweet as well. Uh, his last statement, often our emotions respond more to spectacle than to data. I agree with that. I think the problem is, so we all here are interested and passionate about science communication. It's an important development in sciences that more people are focusing on this. Neil deGrasse Tyson is one that is uh, you know, a, a famous science communicator. He did science communication very poorly in this instance. But I think his main point resonates with me, that we as a, as a society need to be more scientifically literate so we can avoid falling into the traps of uh, emotions and spectacle when they're, when they're not necessary. I'm not talking with the guns now, but for example, with bees. We hear, the, we hear statements, bees are dying. Um, just last week, the uh, Sierra Club sent out a mailer that talked about bees dying and talked specifically about honeybees going extinct, which is not scientifically valid. Honeybees are not going extinct. They are an agricultural commodity and they're fine. And the numbers aren't even declining. So the problem is by doing that, we distract from other important points, like for bees about other bees. Like what about the endangered bees? If the Sierra Club focuses on honeybees, then they ignore the real threats. So I think that what Dr. Tyson was trying to say is that we need to take a step back before we start letting our emotions uh, drive us. Take a step back and look at the data. He just did it very poorly. Yeah, this is fascinating to me because, I mean, he's a scientist. And so he's looking at the data and he's laying out the numbers. And in some ways, that's very effective. I mean, it's like, yeah, you don't want to forget about these other people that are dying for reasons that um, we can also change. But I think, you know, kind of like what Joe was saying is that numbers don't tell the whole story. You know, there's, there's a person behind every number. Part of that's an emotional component, but some of that is understanding the context and the nuance and the underlying reasons behind it all. And when you have something where somebody is being murdered because of hate and intention and gun violence and all the loose laws on guns. That is a little bit, it is a lot bit different and um, I think requires our attention too. I also think another reason that the U.S. is upset by these recent mass shootings is that they're directly linked to white supremacy. There are many people who are feeling emotions right now and are feeling very threatened, not because of the loss of life count of the mass shootings, but because it's symbolic of a larger danger and a larger threat in the U.S. And for Neil deGrasse Tyson to sort of underemphasize that threat, I think is a little irresponsible at this time. Yes, facts matter, data matters, and putting data in perspective with other data matters, but for him to underemphasize that, as I said, I think is irresponsible. This is maybe one of the tragedies of our time right now is in order to get attention to an issue such as, hey, let's, let's look at things in, in greater scientific context, you have to choose your moment. But when you're choosing a moment like this, a moment where everybody's attention is galvanized on an issue, it's often also the wrong moment. And where does that leave us? I'm, I'm not really sure. In the time we have left today, I wanted to know what research-related study or news caught your eye this month. Joe. So there's a new study with a research team out of the UK that compared the weight of strawberries after the plants had been pollinated by honeybees, by wild bees, or by a mixture of honeybees and wild bees. So around the world, the majority of our agricultural crops, we bring in honeybees for pollination services because it's easy and it seems to be effective. Anyway, this what this study shows is that strawberry plants pollinated by wild bees 
yielded bigger strawberries than those pollinated by honeybees. Uh, even when honeybees and wild bees are present, you get smaller strawberries than when it's just wild bees. And so the reason this really catches my attention, because I've been uh, preaching about wild bees for a long time. I like the wild bees. Um, there are a lot of kinds that people don't know. But what people don't realize is that they are as effective or more effective in many cases, like with these strawberries, at uh, providing us food. It necessitates a change to our agricultural system, that we can't just have 10,000 acres of strawberries and truck in honeybees. It's better to have a, a mixed mosaic of natural lands and farm fields, and then you get the free pollination by these bees that are awesome at it, and you get bigger strawberries. Julie? Um, yeah, one uh, study that caught my attention, and I think should have gotten a little more discussion in the media than it did, was um, this study on fluoride. You know, the idea was that a lot of places put fluoride in the in the water because it helps with tooth decay. But are there any downsides to that? And so what they did was look at women who were drinking fluoridated water. And it also monitored fluoride in their system. So that may have come from other sources, too. Looked at these women while they were pregnant. And then, you know, over the long term, looked at these children and the IQ scores of these children. And in five Canadian cities, I think three of which had fluoridated water and two of which did not, the children that grew up in areas with fluoridated water had lower IQ scores by a couple points. And, you know, a couple points in the scheme of things may not sound a lot, but this is exactly the type of data that led um, scientists to figure out that lead was very toxic to the cognitive health of developing children. This is one study, but I'll be interested to see what else comes out. And Danielle? I'm highlighting a study that actually underlines some of the conclusions in my own research. Climate change may make El Nino and La Nina less predictable. There's new research that suggests that the connection between the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean is weakening. While that's not a bad thing per se, the fact that we had that connection between the Pacific and the Atlantic before made predicting El Nino and La Nina much easier. But now that that connection is weakening, it may be more difficult to predict what is going to happen during an El Nino event. This has drastic implications, especially for El Nino vulnerable countries that rely on these predictions for food security, for drought planning, and actually for flood planning. So the fact that climate change is making El Nino more unpredictable is not good. We'll have to leave the discussion there. Daniel Lemon, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And Julie Kiefer, thanks for coming in. I'm happy to be here. And Joe Wilson, it's great to see you again. Thank you. It's good to be here. We broadcast Undisciplined every Friday on Utah Public Radio, but if you miss us there or you live outside of Utah, you can catch us wherever you get your podcasts. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts, and our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.